O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 44, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, September the 5th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Job. We're drawing to an end of of our particular look at it. We skip a whole lot of the book of Job, to be honest with you. Um, We're going to be today in chapter 32, verses 1 to 10, and then jump forward to verse 19 and run that through uh, 33, 1, and then forward from there to 19, to verses 19 to 28. In the gospel, we're in John's gospel, chapter 10, verses 19 to 30, and then in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. So today we're meeting a new character in the uh, book of Job who just appears out of nowhere and then disappears as soon as he's finished. And his name is Elihu. He's younger than the rest of them. We get some information about him. Jewish people believe that all this was around the same time as the patriarchs, around the time of Abraham, and therefore these are relatives of Abraham. Some of them are. So it's it's because of the Buzite is the way Elihu is described. Is he's the son of Barakel the Buzite, and the Buzites relate back to Abraham's brother Milcah. So it it seems that that's the the way that it's interpreted. And Elihu has his own take. He's offended by a couple of different things. He's offended by the theology of um, the the other friends, and he's offended by Job's theology, too, because Job is sort of exalting and defending himself when the point is he should be defending God, that, that God, whatever God does is good and right, because he's good and right, so he can only do good and right. So you can see why Elihu is upset because Job has defended himself against God, and the, the friends have misrepresented God. So now what you get is these three men, Elif, uh, the, the three who had been there before, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. In other words, there's nothing they could say to him. There, there's no point in continuing this. Uh, trying to convict you of sin, Job, because you believe yourself to be righteous. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I'm young in years and you're aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it's the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. What he's not saying is what's too often said today is, is that we have to listen to young people. We have to do that. Now, it's, it's only certain young people that anybody wants us to listen to. We can start with that. But the other side of it is, is that, that here, that's not what he's claiming. He's claiming not wisdom because he's young, but because the Spirit of God is in him. He said, Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. 
it, so what you've got is is increasing capacity. If you make wine, then you then you need a, a, something that will expand so that some of the gases can get out. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I don't know how to flatter. Else my maker would soon take me away. It, it's that's not the intention. It, the intention is to speak truth. That's that's his point in saying I don't know how to flatter. Else my ma- master would take me away. It's because that, that's not what you're called to do. You're called to be a guy who speaks truth. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him, and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his useful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. So the the point is, is that there needs to be, man needs a mediator a go-between between himself and God. And so there needs to be this one, an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him. So in other words, what he, what's needed is a mediator between God and man. We would call these prophets. We would also call, ultimately, Jesus as that. Moses was one, of, was one who was a mediator between God and man. God gave him the law. And then it was his job to interpret the law when the people brought cases to him. And so that's the job of certain people, is this job of mediator. But, but what Elihu is saying is there's a higher mediation necessary. There's an angel, one who can side with God and, all, and, and speak conviction of sin to man, but also plead for mercy for man before the throne of God. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like, well, the role of Jesus? So it's not an angel. It's more than an angel that's necessary here. He sings before men and says, I, have, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light." So what he's saying is, his point in all this, is is that is man's response. Man's response to God's graciousness and mercy is to proclaim that and to say, I didn't get what I deserved. God God is not a God of strict justice. No, he's also merciful. So there's, there's a good news in what Elihu is proclaiming here. And this, this proclamation is one who will mediate between man and God. And, and Elihu sees this as necessary, and he, he says it has to be an angel. It can't be a human being, because human beings can't approach the throne of God. And so he's exalting angels in this place in, in a way that the writer of Hebrews ultimately takes down by, by raising the superiority of Jesus to any angel in heaven. And, and the superiority of Jesus because he's the Son of God, but also because he became flesh. Because both those things are important. And so our proper response to the mercy of God is worship and the proclamation of the merciful part of God's na- uh, nature. So that that's the way that we should respond, frankly. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. So 
we should live lives of gratitude. I don't know how good you are at that. I'm not always very good at that. It's, it's a struggle for me to do that. I'm getting better, but I'm still not where I want to be. In the gospel today, remember Jesus had just said that he was the good shepherd. Uh, now, there's a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Because it, it is a, the, the proclamation that he makes that, that I'm the good shepherd is to say I, I'm the father. I'm, I'm God. And they know that. And they knew what he meant. And that's the reason they say he's a demon and, ha, and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So, no, that, that's not what a demonic uh, possession person would say. No, that they're saying no, I, even if he was. He just healed a man born blind. How did he do that? And Jesus has argued about this before, and that is, is that, that, you, that a demon can't drive out a demon. It has to be something else. And so these guys are seeing it, at least some of them are. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. That's Hanukkah. So it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. What's he done? I mean, <laughs> when has he not told them plainly? He, he didn't say it in the words that they want him to say, but... But this is exactly what his response is. He, he answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. I told you that I'm the Son of Man. I told you that, I, that I'm the light of the world. I told you that I, uh, I am. I told you that I'm the Good Shepherd. How many things do you want me to tell you? Because these all clearly point to the fact that, that I and the Father are one. And some of you guys knew that the other day when I ended a statement with I am before Abraham was I am. And they knew. They knew exactly what he claimed. That's the reason they took up stones to stone him. So the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Just, just look. I'm giving you plenty of evidence. The works that I do bear witness. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You're, you're not even part of the community. You're not being drawn to me because the Father hasn't drawn you to, to me. And so that's the reason. It's, it's not because of anything other than you're not part of the kingdom. You're not part of my clan. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, there you go. If you wanted to hear him say it, if you wanted him to tell, tell you plainly who he is, if he is the Christ, I and the Father are one is a statement that, that you can't really walk back, and it can't really be explained away that you know, he didn't really say that, or he didn't really mean that. And yet, today, in way too many churches, and in way too many uh, halls of learning, people deny this. They deny the divinity of Jesus. And so he's just a great teacher, a good man. And then these gospel writers raised him to be something that he never claimed to be. How anybody can make that determination with only the gospels to go on, I have no idea. You start with a premise and a presupposition, though, that Jesus is just a great teacher. And that's how you end up, is you deny the evidence. 
And it's the same exact mistake these guys make right here. It's exactly the same mistake. If you start with the idea that he can't be who he claims he is, then the only thing you can do is to say that he never claimed to be that. And you can ask questions like, if you're, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Well, nobody has kept you in suspense at all. It's your inability or unwillingness, and it would be on both of those, because it would be the Spirit not moving them in that direction. But, but it's silly, and it's the reason you should never argue with atheists. It's, there's no point. There's absolutely no point at all. Pray for them, certainly. Evangelize them, but don't argue with them. There's no point in that, because the, the point is unless the Spirit draws that person then they're not going to see the truth. Salvation is an act of God. It's not just the act of God on the cross. It's also the act of God in your heart so that you can know and believe these truths. So to argue with an atheist is a waste of time. You're far better off picking your battles praying for that person that the Holy Spirit would come on them and that they would know then the truth in all things. In the epistle, we get Paul going. He's saying exactly this thing, and it's exactly what what Elihu is trying to to represent is is that, that there's no hope for man in man. But his solution is this angelic mediator who can go between God and man, uh, and he he's halfway got the solution. We need a mediator in order to be forgiven, in order to redeem my soul from going down into the pit. But it's not an angel that we need. No, the problem is man. And so the solution, like the bronze serpent, is also man. The solution is exactly what the problem is. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, this is Antioch and Pisidian Antioch, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord because they were so moved the week before when Paul spoke uh, in the synagogue. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be first spoken to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. A little bit of sarcasm there, right? Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. In other words, hey, you've made your own decision. And it's the thing that I've said before about C.S. Lewis. He says, you know, there are some people who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are other people that, who, to whom God has to say, Thy will be done. I didn't send you to hell. You chose it by rejecting my son. And that's exactly what, what Paul's saying here. Is this that, no, this is your choice, and you're making a decision. It's not God's fault. It's yours. You thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's quoting Isaiah there and saying, this is what, this is what God always had in mind. And the plan was always for the Gentiles to be brought into the covenant through the covenant itself and the fulfillment of the covenant with David, that one uh, from his line would always sit on the throne. So the covenants are fulfilled in Jesus. And so if, if you choose not to accept that, then you declare yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life because he is the only way to get eternal life. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It was not everybody, not all the Gentiles got in, no, but the ones that did began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, because there's a place for them in the covenant of eternal life where there wasn't before. And remember, we had a mixed group of people who had appeared at the synagogue, and and there was part of the people there were Jews, and then the other part of the people were God-fearers. They were Gentiles who had not made the full conversion to Judaism because they had not been circumcised. So those are the people that we're talking that that we're talking about here the Gentiles hearing this although it may because that's who was there last week but this time it may be more than that because it's just the almost the whole city gathered so we're not really sure who all is involved in this and it's interesting because there are some Jews who will look at the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt and they will blame that mixed multitude the Arab Rav the people who were not of Israel who came out of Egypt and were in the camp they will blame them for everything not all Jews will but some sects of Judaism will blame the Arab Rav for every single problem that they precipitated or or ignited every single problem and here it's the other way around the Gentiles are, are rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord while the Jewish people are rejecting it. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul said, look, hey, if, if you don't want it here, we'll go somewhere else. And he's doing the shaking of the dust off the feet is exactly what Jesus told people to do when they found an inhospitable um, reaction to them. And it's a curse spoken against them that says, you were inhospitable. We don't want to even be associated with the dust of this place because God might destroy it. It like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exactly the point of this shaking the dust off the feet. I don't want anything from this place to cling to me because I believe it to be wicked and evil. What what? What Elihu is going to miss, he, he gets the transcendence of God and the need for a mediator. His theology is not horrible in that sense, but what he misses is the eminence of God, the, the presence of God among his people. And so he's going to argue that, Job, it's silly of you to, to try and put God in the dock because God's way up there, and so you don't, you don't need—you need somebody to go between you and God. And, and it's the stuff that um, Moses had dealt with in Deuteronomy, and he says that it's not so high that you need somebody to climb up there and get it. No, it's with you and among you. And that's the beauty of the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's how much God loves us, is that he be- took on flesh, dwelt among us, and allowed himself to be completely submitted to us, even though what he really was was being submitted to the will of the Father that that rejection might take place in order that the door might be opened for all humanity to enter into the covenant of life with the living God.